We are turning now to the culminating part of the book of Job. Uh, I'm going to privilege to preach this Sunday, and then AJ is going to close out our series the next two Lord's Days while I work on 1 Samuel to prepare for that. That will start on Labor Day. Um, but as we turn to Job 38, understand God finally speaks. The Lord is going to answer Job starting in this text. We'll look at it again next week, and then we see the culmination and the conclusion to the book two weeks out from now. But to enter into the passage, before we read it, I want to just share a few things introductory-wise. I was recently talking with a person who is a member of this church who may or may not be an engineer, which is a bunch of you. And this person said to me, hey, Jim, I make it my practice to always answer a question with a question. I'm narrowing it down. Some of you are going to be like, I know who this is. You know who you are. Your tactics don't work with me. I want an answer, man. Some people, they answer questions with questions. Why? Because Socratic method and other evidences would show that's how we get into deeper places. Questions take us into deeper places. Two weeks ago when we were away for the father-son trip to the Junior Olympics, Nate and I went to Houston. He ran on a Monday morning and we, we had four and a half days together just to father-son time. It was super special. I'll remember it for a long time. But one of the things that I was committed to doing was saying, God, would you help me do some discipleship with Nate, some study of scripture, maybe use our discipleship booklet. And we tried, but we mainly just played and had a blast. But one of the things that we narrowed our time together down to was, hey, Nate, I want you to come up with five questions. Five questions about anything you want them to be about. We're going to not try to answer them on this trip. But you're 14 years old. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You need to be knowing the kinds of questions you should have that will hold you between now and when I shoot an arrow out into the world and you're no longer in our home anymore. So what, what might your questions be? And he could ask, they could be about girls. They could be about vocation, about sports, about whatever he wanted. But they were his questions. Why? Because questions take us deeper and so I did the same exercise and shared my questions with him. What do I need to be thinking and asking God about in this season of my life as a husband and as a father? Maybe in your life you know the power of questions. Well, folks, Job has been asking questions of God. And we know his main question is why? Why has this horrendous string of sufferings occurred in my life? Why did you include that, God, in your life? blueprint of all things from eternity. I want to talk to you, the architect of all things, because I want you to answer my questions. Gets us all the way now to where we're at in this book. Job's friends, Eliphaz, early on, somewhat mocked him and said, Job, go ahead and call all you want. Will God hear you? Bildad had said to his friend Job, Job, you're like a worm to God. Do you think he really cares that much about your questions? But Job, throughout the book, has says, oh, that I knew where to find God. He will answer me. And now we come to the part of the passage, the, the, the book where God does answer Job. And it should not surprise us that when God answers Job's questions, he takes him much deeper than Job's questions were even going. And God says, I've got some questions for you. And so this passage is almost 100% questions. It's poetic, it's powerful, it's beautiful. So I want you to notice a few things before we read it. First, notice this is an unmediated 
communication between God and Job. God is speaking to Job. Second, notice this. It's personal. God, the Lord himself, is the one speaking to Job. Throughout the book, the word Lord, the personal name of God, the one who's going to reveal himself by that name to Moses at the exodus from Egypt, that name's not been used much. The word God Almighty has been used most frequently in the book. Now, the Lord, Job's personal God, is going to speak to him in an unmediated way. Thirdly, it's absolutely terrifying. God is going to speak to Job out of the whirlwind, out of a storm. Job's life has been a storm, and now God, who governs all creation, is going to speak to Job out of a storm. So note those things. And I'm going to just ask you to stand with me now. We've printed some of the verses from these two chapters in your insert. We won't read all of it, but we're going to touch enough of it that you can grasp this. Hear God's word, and let's enter into it together. Job 38, starting verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb. When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. And prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said thus far shall you come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Chapter 39 verse 1. Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth? When they crouch, bring forth their offspring and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey run free? Who's loosed the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I've given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as he pastures and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes? Or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great? And will you leave, him, leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? <laughs> the wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but they are the pinions and the plumage of love. For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young, as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain. Yet she has no fear because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and the rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his, ne clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leak like the, leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once, and I will not answer twice. 
but I will proceed no further. This is the word of God. God, help us. Thank you for this word from you to Job and Job's response to you. Grow us through it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So God's first question is, who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? It's, it's an interesting question, right? It's as if God doesn't know who's speaking to him. God kind of set this whole thing in motion, didn't he? When he said, go ahead, there's my servant Job. And yet now God says, who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? What does that mean, darkening counsel? I think something along the lines of Job's obscuring or contaminating the holy counsel of God. The counsel of God would be like his mysterious way in which only the divine architect would know that he made all things. It's quite a confrontational scene. It doesn't mean it's harsh. It's in a whirlwind. There is power and holiness, but there's also love and graciousness. There's condescension to, without a mediator, speak to Job. All at once, with this pile of questions, God kind of stuns Job, and yet he, he, he comforts him into a place of conviction of, this is my God who made everything. I can trust him. Somewhere between the shock and awe is the comfort and the kindness, and yet it's not not confrontational. He looks at Job and says, dress for action like a man. Like, gird your loins, pull your robe up, because you're about to have a wrestling match with your creator. Yes, you could think of Jacob here in Genesis 32, him who wrestled with God. How does God do this wrestling, this challenge to Job? Well, it's through a litany of questions that display his creation. So, Job, where were you when... I laid the foundations of all things. When I used a measuring line and I ensured balance and precision in this world, if you've ever studied anything with regards to intelligent design, one of my favorite concepts from back in college as well as seminary was the irreducible complexity of all things. One degree change. And the, and the, the earth spins off its axis or we're burned up. And Job says, where were you when that precision was set in place? Do you know where the cornerstone was laid, the bedrock of the earth? Where were you, Job? God's literally directing Job to the material, the physical, the chemical, the biochemical regularities of this world. Natural laws, physical laws that have their correlation with a world that's supposed to be ordered with the moral and the social and the relational order that God has put in place. Where were you, Job? We sang Joy to the World earlier. I love ultimately the question there after the first section where God essentially says, Job, did you, did you enjoy hearing the stars sing at creation? Maybe it reminds you as it does me of C.S. Lewis's work, The Magician's Nephew. And you have this rendition of the creation of Narnia. Allow me to read. It'll tell you how brilliant C.S. Lewis was. In the darkness, something was happening a voice had begun to sing. It seemed to come from all directions at once. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth itself, but there were no words. There was hardly even a tune, but it was beyond comparison, the most beautiful noise he'd ever heard. It was so beautiful, Diggory could hardly bear it. Then two wonders happened at once. First, the one voice was suddenly joined by other voices. There were more voices than you could possibly count. The second wonder was that the blackness overhead all at once was blazing with stars. You would have felt 
quite certain that it was the stars themselves that were singing. Were you there for that, Job? This is what God asks. What's amazing to me is the joy and the singing in God's first words there, they are fundamentally inverse of the first words of Job in chapter 3 in the book. So when Job has lost everything, and I was preaching on that particular Sunday, I remember like it was yesterday, the, the, the deep lament of Job's pain. Do you remember how in his lament he basically says, God, I wish that you would rewind creation. I want you to go back and undo all creation, make it all chaos again, and make sure you undo the part where I was born. Do you remember that? Job's first grieving words were, God, would you please undo creation? Now, God's first words are God saying, Job, were you there at the glorious singing when I, with but a word, created all things? It's an amazing poetic book. And so then God just goes through creation. He starts with the sea. Genesis 1-9, God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together in one place. And it was so. God call, called the dry land earth. The waters that were gathered together, he called the sea. And God saw that it was good. And so God says to Job in verse 8, Job, who do you think shut the sea in with doors? Who put a limit on the sea, Job? When Nate and I were in Houston... We ended up watching this surfing documentary for at least 30 minutes uh, of the 100-foot wave. Just watched a little bit of this. Outside of Nazarene, Portugal, what was crazy about it is the way it all comes together. There's these cliffs there, and people could stand up on the cliffs, and that's where they got the great pictures that were in, like, National Geographic of this almost 100-foot wave being surfed. But the cliffs there just tell the water to Stop. 100-foot wave that you can see with your naked eye, that cameras can zoom in on and see the, the, the water that's colliding with the surfer. That's how close that you are to that much power. Who made it so the sea just stops? God said, I did, Job. But it's very important, and we understand biblical poetry here for a second. The sea is a symbol of chaos, of darkness, of evil, all throughout the Old Testament, particularly in biblical poetry. So there's something deeper here than just God pointing Job to the sea. What he's saying is, Job, I have set a strict limit on the sea, and if symbolically that is the evil and the chaos of this sinful world, this broken world that's caused you so much pain, Job, you need to know, I, much the same with the sea, can look at evil and say, thus far shall you go, but no further. Job, I am in control. There's a point at which evil cannot extend, just as there's a point at which the sea will not extend. Then in verse 12, God transitions from the sea to the dawn, and he says, Job, have you commanded the morning sun to get up? This is more than God saying, Job, did you make the sun peek over the horizon? No, it's a picture of basically the sun being woken up and shaken and telling the earth to wake up, almost like a teenager being woken up and kind of peeking over the sheets like, do I have to? And God says to Job, do you do that with the sun every morning? Tell the sun to get up and go to its place. But even this is implicating God's authority over evil because the way it's worded, verse 13, God says, have you instructed the light every day to take hold of the earth and shake it such that the wicked are shaken out of it? What's it saying? It's saying that the wicked love darkness rather than light. And God is a God of light that exposes wickedness. And so every time the sun rises, every time the light is switched on at creation, Job, you should be firmly convicted 
that there will be an end to the darkness of this world. Then in verse 16, God jumps to the opposite extreme. From the morning dawn to total darkness. He says, Job, have you entered the recesses of the deep? Have you gone to the place where no light goes? Verse 17 parallels that dark place of the sea to death itself. God says, have the gates of death been revealed to you, Job? Have you gone through death? Do you know that dark place? Then in verse 22, uh, an even different extreme. The poem jumps forward and God says to Job, Job, have you entered into the storehouses of the snow? Do you have a place where you keep all of your elements like I have a place where I keep my elements? Can you dispense your elements when you believe you should for the right purpose just at the right time with just, a, just the right amount? Do you have storehouses where you can let water come from them such that they cleft channels and rocks as do I, Job? It's fascinating. God's saying, Job, I have power to distribute my elements to do my will on the earth. And just the reference of hail or of torrential rain, aren't those declared in the Old Testament particularly? We have hail being sent on the Amorites in the days of Joshua. Hail is a plague against Egypt. You have, of course, the torrential rain of judgment with Noah's flood. God is saying to Job, Job, I have not only elements stored away, but I have them for my purpose when I choose to release them. Do you have your elements in your place to release when you think that you should release them? Job, can you, verse 26, Job, can you bring gentle rain from your storehouse to water the desert, desert and make green grass grow? Do you act like I do as a father to the rain? And, and do you make it so that the dew in the morning will cause things to grow? Is that how you use water, Job, when you use it? And yet then God almost interrupts himself and says, while I still also have the power to freeze the very same water that I could otherwise cause to rage if I wanted to. And then verse 31, I think God looks at Job and says, hey, Job, look up. Look up at the stars. Job, did you set the place for the stars? Do you bind the chains of Pleiades or the Luke, can you loose the cords of Orion? By the way, Orion is the only constellation I can ever find. Just thought I'd tell you that. It's the only one. I want us to enter into what Job must be feeling, to think on it the way that he must be thinking on it. Because as God just throws these elements of creation verbally at his servant Job, then Job is humbled and quieted and sort of can feel he's supposed to answer. But then in verse 35, God says, Job, besides all of this, I created you. Verse 35, who's put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Job, did you give that capacity to yourself? Who put the capacity and the yearning in you to understand and want to understand the creator's design and how your life fits into it? Did you put that in you? We have a shift toward the end of 38, certainly into 39, where in the silence, and we can feel it with Job, all of a sudden God moved from the foundations and measurements and elements of creation to the animate life that roams different habitations of the earth. He goes to wild animals. And I've loved this this week. 
the design of God's creating every wild thing to roam where he places it to roam. One commentator said this, these are not the creatures expected to be found on Job's farm. God takes Job on a tour of the created order that lies outside the limits of the world that can be domesticated. A world of life and death, of beauty and danger, of power and weakness. And so he starts and says, can you hunt prey for the lion who satisfies its young? I mean, it sounds sweet, doesn't it? I mean, cute little baby lions. This is vicious. Animals who are prey, torn limb from limb. Cubs, yes, they're fed, but it's a scene that can't be sanitized by any graph of a food chain. Or if we were to see this scene unfold in front of us, we would, we would watch in awe and we would fixate on it while turning away at the same time. This is where God takes Job. You have the riot and the dance of creation, right? And, and we'll see that at the very end of 39, the list concludes of these animals with birds of prey. So he mentions lions and ravens, and then at the very end, he brings up hawks and eagles who with sight that only God could design can see their prey from far away and descend upon it unexpectedly. Chapter 39, verse 1, God says, Job, what do you know of life and death? Is that something you know about? Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? Did you design its months for pregnancy? We had somebody ask us the other day, so are you going to get your goats pregnant so that you can, you know, have goat cheese? We're like, yeah, but the problem is, is we're terrified of not knowing when our goat would give birth to one, two, or three little baby goats. And the terror of that is causing the Powells to be like, yeah, we'll just play with Guinevere as a pet. But we'd love to make goat cheese. We'd love to do all that. But the prospect of pregnancy and the complications, and God says to Job, does the mountain goat need you? Did you plan its length of pregnancy? Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. And God's saying to Job, did you prescribe any of those times? Verse 5 what of the wild donkey, Job, who gives it a home in the arid desert and makes it free to roam that dry, salty habitation? Or how about the wild ox, Job? Can you make the wild ox serve you? Can you harness him with ropes, have him till your fields and gather your grain? Understand, a wild ox was a legendary terror. In Psalm 22, when David talks about God's protection of him, he lists a wild ox next to the lion from which he's been rescued by God. Wild oxen would have horns up to six feet across, and God is saying to Job, Job, are you an ox whisperer? Like, can you walk up to a wild ox, pat it on its head, make it eat from your hand, and lead it back to your stable? It'd be foolish. No one would do that. Speaking of foolish, Job, did you make the ostrich? It's a peculiar thing. It has wings but can't fly. She leaves her eggs in the open, vulnerable, but she doesn't care. She's got no mind to think of them. She's a very stupid creature. Why is she stupid, Job? Because I made her forget wisdom. And yet, surprise, she is nuclear fast. When she gets scared and she flees, she can outrun a horse and rider with that funny, I mean, just picture with me. A horse and rider are trying to get to the ostrich and the ostrich just flies behind with that funny look on her face with wings and not flying. Did you create a world with such funny things, Job? 
This isn't funny at all. The next animal God goes to, but let's contrast that funny ostrich with a horse that is so brave it laughs at fear. The war horse is just powerful. And when there's a sword and the horn blares for the battle to start, you can't stop the beast that I made for battle from racing into it with power. What wild creation. And God says, Job, shall a fault finder contend with the creator? So God says to Job with a very clear demand, I want you to answer me. That's the creator's demand. Speak. Answer. All these questions deserve the answer from the creature to the creator. We know that Job is righteous before God. We know that He's not perfect, but he has no secret sins to repent of that caused all the sufferings. The book's been showing us that. But we have to understand that God himself says, Job, you are a fault finder with the way I run the world. You have opined and hinted that you could have helped me in a useful way at creation, that the world would make more sense if you had been there with me. Do we not live in a world where people do this? Just want to make sure I bring it into reality for a moment. Do you know how frequently people say, well, let me tell you about, you know how I think God is? I think God's like this. And then they change their view of what they think God is, and if you ask them to be more consistent, then it's not good, right? I think God's like this. This is what I think. I think the Creator's like this. I think this is what He's doing. We hear it in the church. Be careful taking the Lord's name in vain by looking at someone else and telling them exactly what God is doing in their life. But we hear it outside the church too, don't we? People in the culture around us expressing frank opinions about whoever they believe God is, a God made in their image. And so God peppers his servant with questions and says, answer me. And Job says, I'm done. Job says two things. He says, I'm small. In other words, I'm small, I'm finite, I'm limited. What can I say to you? And the next thing he says, I am done talking. I will lay my hand over my mouth. You won't hear another word from me, God. His response is silence. Some of you know that on uh, about two or three weeks ahead of the passage that we're preaching, Bill and AJ and myself have a preaching little cohort. We work on the passage we're going to preach from. We go through a, a... outline. What's the context of the passage? What's the structure of it? One of the questions on this sheet is, what is the aim of the text for the original audience? All right, the next question is, where do we see the gospel in it? And then the last question is, how would we apply it to our audience? But the question, what is the aim of this text? And our obligation when we do our preaching prep time is to write in a single short sentence what we believe at that point in our studies that the aim of the text is. I will just simply tell you that what I said to these brothers when I was filling out the form three weeks ago was the aim of the text is silence. I think that's it. The aim of God's words to Job were silence. And in the silence, Job had to ponder, why would God answer all my questions with these questions? Is there a point God is making? And what I would propose to use the point is very simple. God, through these questions, is looking at Job saying, trust me. Trust me. In the silence, you need to meditate 
on the glory and the grandeur and design that I have put into this world. And you need to, with your life in the middle of that world, trust me. So I've been thinking about how much I hate silence. My family knows it. You probably all know it. I am the worst small group leader in the history of pastors. I hate silence. It's hard for me, but if there's been a week of asking for God to help me be quiet, it's been this week because of this passage. What do we maybe think or see when we just stop talking and being so busy? Let me tell you three things I see right away that I need to meditate on if I will just be silent with Job. First thing, it's all about the creator, not the creation. Isn't that what God says in Romans 1? The world around you is going to worship the creature, not the creator. But if you are my child and you know the creator who is your redeemer, then it's about the creator, not the creation. And our feelings, those are a created thing. Our flesh, that's a created thing. Our circumstances among created things around us. They take center stage in so many of our lives and we live in a freaking anxious culture as a result of it. It's about the creator, not the creation. Second thing for me, that means it's about his design, not my demands. And I need to repent if my demand for how my day and my week and my design is supposed to go takes center stage in what I think about when I finally stop doing so many things and I'm quiet. It's about his design, not my demands. And then third thing that comes to mind, it, it takes silence for us to meditate on the wildness of our God. And that's where I'm going to go to apply the gospel before we take the Lord's Supper. I want you to think with me about what this text is saying to us about how wild our creating and redeeming God is. Shame on me. For, for not thinking about it as often as I ought? What does it do for our spiritual life if we realize that the master of all the extensive and unbelievable and untamable wild things in this creation is the God of our rescue who designed us for a purpose? What does that do for our spiritual life? Well, if this is our God and it's Job's God, then do you really believe that there is nothing, there is no one so dangerous and so wild as to bring risk to your life? Isn't that what we say some Sundays from Romans 8? No tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or danger or nakedness or sword. None of that should be concerned because our God is the God of wild creation. No politics or COVID or governments or circumstances or lack of paycheck or whatever. Nothing should terrify me if I believe that the God of creation is this wild and he chose his people to rescue with his power. Here's what gets me. So many of us who would say by God's design we've been created in his image, he's rescued us, we're forgiven of our sins and then we start to live our life of faith. We go into the realm of church, into the realm of vocation, into the realm of our families and I've seen it and I struggle with it. A bunch of Christians walking around trying to live a very controlled and contained life when we have this wild of a God. Where it becomes about small rules, about daily schedules and structures, 
And yes, in the Bible, we're called to do everything decently and in order. We saw that in 1 Corinthians. We're called to honor the creator by having our minds come into obedience and conforming to his will. We're called to do everything with purpose. But at the same time, we should see in us, if we're the redeemed of this God, a passion that is growing for life and for serving him and for serving others that nothing can contain. And it terrifies me that if I think of the people that are really wild in this world, it's the rebels. The angry, prideful people that are just ruining other people's lives because they have these control longings and needs and they're not contained and they just run wild and we get afraid of those people influencing our life and causing pain. I've been listening to a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church. Pretty dark, pretty, pretty yucky fall of a mega church in Seattle, but the podcast is going through just the, the pride and the arrogance and the wildness of leaders who went unchecked. How many of us, the example of a wild and passionate life is somebody who is outside the bounds of God's law? And so sometimes then we start to think that if I'm inside the bounds of his law, I have this contained, safe, and God forbid, cozied life. Shouldn't it, it should be anywhere close to that. May the redeemed of this kind of creator be radically wild in our worship, in our pursuing obedience, in our repentance, and if you're a husband, in the way you chase your wife, in the way you pursue reconciliation, in the way that you don't let the cultural narratives around us freak you out. You want to have passion, have passion for the things that God is saying he's passionate about, and it's his glory as the creator and the redeemer. We need to be very careful that we don't rob the creator of his glory because we're trying to contain all the things that we think obedience requires into this stifled, impassioned existence. It's wild, the rescue of our God. So let me show you how wild, and here's how we'll close up, because even greater than seeing God in his wildness is I think we see Jesus in his saving us in this chapter. When Jesus came as God in the flesh, he was so wildly, untamably different. It was God, the creator, among his creation. So think of verse 38, excuse me, verse 34 and 35 when God says to Job, Job, can you make creation obey you? Right? Do the clouds and the lightnings come to you and say, yes, sir, we'll do what you ask? Job can't, but did not Jesus out on a boat with his disciples Look at the raging sea and say, calm down. And the sea went to glass like that. And the disciples looked at Jesus and said, oh my gosh, who is this? And they were terrified because the God of the wild creation was over the creation right there in their midst. We see Jesus there. How about this? When Jesus came in the flesh, was he not totally outside the realm of the contained and the expected? I read one commentator this week who said, when I read the part about the ostrich, a bird with wings that can't fly, I think of Jesus. The commentator said, why? Because Jesus, like the ostrich, when it goes running past the fastest horse, Jesus defied people's imagination when he just walked on water. Man can't do that. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, man can't do that. Who is this? And yet he wept with Martha and Mary. He was tempted, but without sin. He looked so ordinary 
and people esteemed him not, Isaiah 53. Folks, our Christian life is not about pursuing some safe, ordered, passionless, coddled, obedient existence following Jesus. Jesus was wild. He showed up on the scene in the temple and screamed out, Is anybody thirsty? He offended the religious with their order. We have a wild God whose rescue came from his wild heart that brutally sacrificed his own son for our salvation. It's nothing greater and more glorious and powerful and wild than that. And then finally, folks, understand the poem says that God set a limit for the sea. There's a point at which the, the wild sea can't go any further. What was the point at which sin and death could go no further? But the cross of Jesus, right? Verses 16 to 18, Job, have you, ha, have you gone into the darkest place? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Did you come out the other side to teach on it? No, Job, you haven't, but who did? Who went into the darkness of death and came out the other side? Jesus went to the place of the dead and came out victorious. And so God looks to us in the gospel and he says, all of the sin and all of the pain and all of the exhaustion, all the struggle, it has its limit and its limit is in the person of Jesus. Its limit is in him conquering sin on the cross. And so when he comes to reign again and recreate all things, it's going to be wild, but what is no longer going to be? pain and sorrow and sin and unreconciled relationships and yada, yada, yada. It will stop forever in Jesus. So what's the response? As we take the Lord's Supper, I think it's silence that precedes song. Hearts that leap for joy. And if you're struggling to have anything close to the passion of even this wildness in this text, I would, I would plead with you in the silence to pray for it. Are you as passionate for the glory of the God who saved you from sins you once were very passionate for? Oh, that we would silently meditate on what Job is being paused to meditate on and would we come out of it on the other side with a spirit and a zeal to obey and honor and repent and believe and this table is for those who repent and believe the gospel. So I invite you when we take to come and come boldly but with a heart that's pondering these words of our God given to Job and given to us. Let me pray. Father, would you nourish us now by the sacrament? Thank you for the Lord's Supper, for all that Jesus accomplished when he was the limit of sin and death and he conquered it. And so now may we have no fear. May we be full of passion, full of reflecting the glory of you, the creator who made such a wild world and put wisdom in our hearts to know you, to obey you to repent when we see we don't walk with you and to anticipate a new creation that's full of the glory that the stars sang about at the first creation. Give us hope in that. We thank you that we can boldly come before you, that we're righteous in your sight by faith in Christ and him alone. Nourish us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.